Please turn in your Bibles to Romans 9, verses 1 through 26, for the scripture reading. Romans 9, and verses 1 through 26. Again, this is the scripture reading. This is the word of the Lord. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had not done either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the elder will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have, I have loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me, then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but from also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, 
Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Please turn now in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. And verses 3 through 12. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12. But I will go ahead and begin reading from the beginning of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, this is your word, inspired by your Holy Spirit, and we are your people, justified in Christ, sanctified in him, united to him by that self-same Holy Spirit. We ask, O oh Lord, now that you would illumine our hearts and minds, enlighten us as we study your word together, for your glory and for our good. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. The Apostles' burden, brothers and sisters, in these passages, these verses that we are studying today, studying together today, is to let believers know that they are very important 
very important to the Lord, and that they are key players, you are, in God's plan of the ages. Even if you are feeling marginalized or even persecuted. Peter's saying that despite your seeming insignificance, in this case, out there on the fringes of the Roman Empire, you are not on the fringes of God's plan, but at the very center of God's plan, So even your suffering has a purpose. We are told that God inspired the prophets for our benefit. Apostles were inspired to minister to your needs and to point you on your way. And angels, beings of immortal glory, are envious of your position as heirs of God. Rejoice, therefore, Peter Peter tells us, for your present struggles... And your fears amount to nothing. For you have an imperishable, a glorious inheritance waiting for you in heaven. Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us look to verse 3. This language Peter uses, he has caused us to be born again. Peter calls upon his hearers to bless God the Father for something. For something that God the Father has done for you. Why are you to bless God? You are to bless God because he has caused you to be born again. This language made me think of the polling data that's often collected about how many Americans consider themselves to be born again. It's often revealed to be a considerable number of people. But I think that for many of those polled, they assume that the expression born-again Christian, as opposed to just plain Christian, indicates the idea of an increased level of personal commitment. While a Christian is someone who perhaps believes that Jesus is the promised Messiah and that the New Testament contains the truth, the the born-again Christian is someone probably supposed to mean, for a great many people, Someone who's really on fire for Jesus. The born-again Christian is supposed to be someone who has reformed his habits, like a person who has made a strict New Year's resolution. But for the apostles and for our Lord, to be born again is to be the recipient, the receiver, the object of a supernatural divine act. The Greek word here translated as cause to be born again is perhaps better translated as begat us all over again. Praise God the Father, says Peter, who begat us all over again. As John put it in chapter 1 and verse 13 of his gospel, Christians are those who were born not of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. The second birth, this being born again, is not from you. It is God's doing. And you have cause, according to Peter, to praise and to thank him for it and for the resulting living hope that he has begotten within you. This rebirth by God's begetting us is his breathing spiritual life into you who were, until that moment, spiritually dead. Turn with me, brothers and sisters in Christ, to Ephesians chapter 2. After Galatians, Ephesians, 
Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, brothers and sisters. But God. You were sons of disobedience. But God. You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. But God made you alive together with Christ. In his rich mercy, God made you alive. He re-begat you by his spirit unto a living hope. Blessed be indeed the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us look at verse 4 of our passage, back in 1 Peter 1, beloved. Verse 4, in this language, An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Christians, everything you, you own currently, everything you have ever owned, everything you will ever own, is perishing. It is fading away. Your very own tent, your jar of clay, that is your natural body, it itself is perishing. It too is fading away. Nothing that we cling to in this world will last. But this inheritance that is in heaven waiting for you is going to last. It is not going anywhere. It is yours. It is also not as if you can simply just bail on Christianity and that imperishable inheritance that is waiting for you will just be taken out of the dwelling place that, that Christ has made for you. And both it and the dwelling place will be given to somebody else. Peter not only says here that God is keeping the inheritance for you. Look at what he's saying. He is also saying that God is keeping you for the inheritance that's waiting for you. He says the inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And that you by God's power are being guarded until it is revealed in the last time. Of course we recognize that no power in heaven or on earth or in hell can go into the place where our inheritance sits there waiting for us, where it's being kept for us, and remove it. We know that no one can steal anything from heaven. But do we really understand and do we believe what Peter is saying here? What he is actually saying is that God is keeping us for this inheritance. He is guarding us from anything that might interfere with our obtaining this inheritance. 
And he's doing this by his own power, not ours. If things get rough for God's elect, if faith seems to falter under trial, and the bread of affliction seems to have become your daily bread, God's power will guard you. God, who gave you faith in Christ to begin with, will by his power increase that faith in time of need. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for making us alive together with Christ, for making us fellow heirs with him, of a treasure that does not perish, and for promising to preserve us unto the day when we will obtain it. Let's look at verse 5 together. This language, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter says that our salvation is to be revealed in the last time. Did you notice that? But that introduces a question, doesn't it? How can our salvation be something that is revealed in the last time if we are supposed to be saved now? Doesn't Paul say in that passage we just read in Ephesians 2 that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith? If we already have been saved by grace through faith, what does Peter mean by suggesting that our salvation is something to be accomplished in the future? The truth of the matter is that the Bible reveals that we're both saved now and we are going to be saved then. There is an already and a not yet aspect of our salvation according to the word. Now we have been saved by grace through faith from the guilt and the dominion of sin. Then we shall be saved from this exile Peter speaks of and saved from the very presence of sin as well. We are saved now from the curse of the law then we shall be saved from every remnant of lawlessness. Now we are saved from eternal death. Then we shall be saved from every illness, every frailty of body and mind. Remember this already and not yet aspect of our salvation. Because this same aspect or way of looking at things can be said to be present in other biblical, biblical realities as well. There is an already and a not yet way of understanding the kingdom of God. It's present, and yet will not be fully present until the end of days. There's an already and a not yet sense of our sanctification. We will not be fully sanctified until we've been issued our final summons and are brought home to heaven. But in another sense, we have been sanctified already in being set apart for God's purposes as a part of his holy nation of saints. So looking at this salvation, looking at salvation in this way, this already and not yet way, is kind of like this inheritance that Peter is speaking of. When a man makes a will and declares who his heirs are, these people called heirs have come to have something, and yet not have something. Being an heir to a king is a privileged position, even if the heir has not yet come into his inheritance. Such a person, though not yet placed on the throne, 
is known as the crown prince. He's received a new status. He has received something great. He has become the possessor of something real. He's an heir to the throne. And many advantages have become his already in the now. But the fullest possession of his inheritance remains for a time that is yet in the future to be enjoyed. As Peter has said, it is kept for us and we for it, but it remains for us to come into it in its fullest sense. And this is all Peter means when he says that our salvation will be revealed in the last time. While he says that those with faith are saved already in verse 9. And you can certainly appreciate how comforting Peter's message would be to a persecuted group of believers and churches. Perhaps deprived of their property and some of them even of their lives. With these assurances of their imperishable inheritance ready and waiting for them in heaven. They may have been turned out of their earthly inheritances by the state or the mob, but those were perishable. Those were fading away anyway. Brothers and sisters, remember these truths. Remember this message. So the churches in America as a whole come upon hard times. It is, if you think in this way, a very small thing to step out of our perishable possessions and into a glorious imperishable inheritance as a crown prince or crown princess and heir or heiress to the king of the entire universe. Blessed indeed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's look now at verse 6, brothers and sisters, of our passage in 1 Peter. Verse 6, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Please observe the words, brothers and sisters, if necessary. Why would grievous trials be necessary? Why would God, or cons God ever consider grief to be necessary? Trials that grieve his people? Necessary? Peter's thoughts seem to be at odds with the doctrines of a substantial portion of the American church. Because of certain notions prevailing in the churches these days, such as living the victorious Christian life or living your best life now, the trials and grief experienced by the churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia might strike one as strange. Especially when the Apostle Peter says that these trials and grief were deemed necessary by God. But why necessary? Why, as Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 3 and 3, are believers destined or appointed unto afflictions? The answer is plainly revealed in the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. Which reads, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. 
God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time and as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. By the grievous but necessary trials that Peter speaks of, you are being disciplined by the Lord. If you are not thus disciplined, we are told in the word, you are not sons and heirs. These trials and afflictions are not meant to punish you for sin. Rather, they are meant to discipline you away from sin. The fruit of these things is righteousness and holiness. So you must not regard them lightly or try to fly from them. Hebrews 12, 6 says, and I like how the King James puts it, God scourges every son he receives. Scourges. Would this scourging be what your typical prosperity preacher describes as victorious living? The writer to the Hebrews warns in verse 8 of that passage that if you are not being scourged by God, you are not a legitimate son, and therefore, as we all know, not an heir. But now many professing Christians today believe that affliction, afflictions and grief and suffering are not proofs of legitimacy and of divine paternity but instead suggestive of a faulty faith that needs correcting. What many in the church today point to as evidence that one may very well be outside the flock, namely suffering and affliction, is for the apostles evidence that one is inside the fold. In fact, the apostles warn that if you are not being scourged by necessary afflictions and trials, You should be concerned about your own legitimacy. Such things, they tell us, are necessary to make us holy and to make us righteous. But such suffering also tests our mettle for genuineness, as Peter suggests. As gold is tested by fire, so is your faith by suffering. As Matthew Henry put it, God's design in afflicting his people is their probation, not their destruction. Their advantage, not their ruin. A trial, as the word signifies, is an experiment or a search made upon a man by some affliction to prove the value and strength of his faith. The faith of good people is tried that they themselves may have the comfort of it, God the glory of it, and others the benefit of it. Grievous trials have a probing and approving quality because they tend to weed out the false professors and expose them for what they are, mere mercenaries, soldiers for hire. Suffering reveals the ones within God's host who are soldiers personally loyal to the king. 
and those who are in it for their part, simply for personal gain. Consider the words of our Lord in his parable of the sower about such persons as these. He says that these are ones, these are the ones who receive the word with joy, but when tribulation or persecution arise, fall away. Indeed, it is a true saying that a king has a multitude of servants, but few sons. Returning now to 1 Peter, please note in verse 6 the phrase, now for a little while. The necessary trials are but for a season, beloved. Show some steadfastness. Don't become discouraged. Consider rather with the Apostle Paul that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So gird up your loins and put on the whole armor of God and play the man. You, if you are legitimate sons, are heirs with this crown prince. Do not falter under a few momentary afflictions. Let not a few glancing blows stagger you. They aren't worth comparing with the glory to come. If a soldier truly believed that after a short campaign, if he merely held his place in his regiment, he would be made a fellow heir with the king's own son. If he really believed it, do you think he would consider, even for a moment, dropping his arms and falling out of the ranks when a few darts that he knows are not even lethal to him fly at him. These things that happen to you can never destroy you, beloved. They can only startle you. They are appointed unto you so as to make you fruitful. They are necessary. You must therefore, beloved, submit to be pruned. For branches that are not pruned so as to bear fruit will only be cast into the fire. As the Father, whom Jesus describes as a vine dresser in John 15, clips the fruitless branches from you, do not howl and do not grumble, but in this you rejoice. Rejoice that he has seen fit to discipline you as a son, that he has chosen you to adorn his heaven forever and that he has undertaken to ready you by such trials to enter his gates in the splendor of holiness join peter then in saying with a whole and an undivided heart blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ the last paragraph of our passage today puts forward a couple of encouraging things to keep in mind even if you are feeling marginalized and isolated and out there on the margins of God's purposes, you have to remember, says Peter, that the whole Old Testament and all the labors of the prophets were for your benefit. Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and the rest of that holy band all labored. They all labored with you in mind. The apostles, the apostles, too, have been called and sent and equipped. They've been inspired in their writings and their interpretation of the Old Testament, all for you. 
Pastors and teachers have been called and equipped to serve the ends of your eternal salvation. This book, your Bible, was composed over thousands of years, preserved and guarded to serve the goal of your perfection in Christ, that you may be presented before him in that great and awful day without spot or wrinkle. Remember that you are the apple of God's eye, God's chosen people, and even the immortal angels themselves look on us with both curiosity and a holy jealousy. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, our glorious God and King, we stand in awe of your goodness unto us in Christ, that you have condescended to make us fellow heirs with your own beloved Son. Help us, O Lord, to to keep courage during this brief sojourn. Help us, O Lord, to be bold for you, to be courageous for you, to not give in when we encounter these necessary trials, but to keep this biblical perspective, this apostolic perspective of these sufferings and trials in mind. Remind us of these truths, O Lord, when you test us and prove us and discipline us with suffering and with trials. We pray these things for your own glory and our own good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.